A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. Rana Adesh is a doctor in the intensive care unit at a big hospital, Henry Ford in Detroit. And when corona cases started arriving in March, she made up this job for herself. She started spending hours of each day walking the fourth, fifth, and sixth floors that made up the ICU, just checking in on her coworkers, seeing how they were doing. Which means that maybe more than any single person in the hospital, she knows best what the staff has been going through at every stage of this pandemic. And she tries to help. Even, for instance, when a unicorn tells her that she is short on bleach and wipes. I'll see if I can poke some people. Okay, thank you. I love you. Love you too. Mickey Meek on our staff is the person who first reached out to Rena and got to know her. Hey there, Mickey. Hey, Ira. So one of the things that's new about coronavirus is how much death the doctors and nurses see. It's relentless. And Rena especially worries about the doctors who are still in training. It's their residents and fellows. All right, Henry Ford is a big uh, teaching hospital. Yeah, so when Rena was a resident, she says the doctors in charge never checked in with the trainees about their feelings after a patient died. She says it's traumatic. You can feel like you failed them. And Rena says that two of the residents she trained with actually died by suicide. She sometimes still like wonders if someone checking in might have made a difference. So, you know, when she heard about a team of Henry Ford trainees who lost a patient, she made a point of stopping by to see them. They were all in this like cramped, windowless workroom. It's on the fifth floor. Hi, you guys. How are you? How are you? Are I was you? trying to write an email to you, but I that's got why up. we came down because nice. I figured it was like a better talking thing than. <laughs> yeah. We heard there was a bad day. <laughs> there was a young 22-year-old woman who died, and everyone took it pretty bad. Yeah. There wasn't a dry eye. Anywhere. That's a resident named Reem saying there wasn't a dry eye. I'm not sure I've ever heard doctors talk like this among themselves about what it's like when a patient dies. I have to say, it's, it's interesting. You've played me this tape, and before this conversation with the trainees even gets started, their leader, Jay Lakshmikanth, heads for the door to leave. And Rena kind of box him. Um, you guys can chat. I got to do this thing. I'm going to walk over here. Yeah. So she stands in front of the door and she opens up this bag of donated scrub caps that have sharks and dinosaurs on them. Did it make you too sad? Is that oh, why God, you just took yourself out of the conversation? I feel like you need one of these, though, because I'm seeing your hair. <laughs> you know how many of those I have? Why aren't you wearing People them? Keep giving them to me. <laughs> it's sort of a hint. <laughs> and then Rena, she turns to that resident, Reem, to get her to say more about her feelings, about this patient who died. They'd taken care of her for a whole month. What were you sharing about the patient? Oh, no, it was just, you know, like, she's 22. She's just, like, one of us. And I was just staring at how beautiful she Aww. was. You know? Like, her eyelashes, her nails, her toenails. She, she, she worked in the eyelash business. She was, like, we saw her pictures. Her mom shared her pictures Aww. with us, and she was so beautiful. Mm. She, was, she was the hardest case for us, yeah. I, I don't know, for me personally, I wanted to quit many times. Many days, I would imagine the conversation with Dr. Bray. I just tell him, I can't do it anymore. Oh, <laughs> It's almost over. I'm so sorry. We all have those days. We literally all have those days. It's crazy what we expect of ourselves. Mm-hmm. I've cried on rounds multiple times. I've had to leave, mm-hmm. take a break, cry, and then come back. It's yeah. just really hard. And I have such a good Jay had tried to get Reem to take a day off to get a break. The next day was her son's seventh birthday. But Reem didn't want to leave the rest of her team hanging. And he 
certified medical. It sounds birthday, yeah. come on. Okay. And you miss it. Yeah. Come finish my work and then I'll go. No. No, it's okay. He doesn't wake up till 11 anyways. <laughs> Do you know what seven is? I got him a is? drone, I got him many toys, so... Mm -hmm. Toys aren't going to replace you. Do you know what a seven <laughs> is? It's a lucky number in Hinduism. Yep. In my culture, oh, really? it's a very lucky number. Even here, with white yeah. people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, have you seen this room? We don't know about white people. <laughs> We chose Henry Ford Hospital because it's in Detroit, a city that's 80% black. Black Americans have been dying of COVID-19 at higher rates than anybody else. In Michigan, they are four times more likely to die than whites. Henry Ford usually gets a mix of black and white patients from all over the Midwest, but with the pandemic, the hospital basically turned into a huge COVID ward for the city of Detroit. And the patients in the ICU were now mostly black. The staff says the majority were essential workers. Bus drivers, police officers, firefighters, sanitation workers, people from grocery stores. It's personal on a lot of levels. Dr. Geneva Tatum is one of the few black doctors in the ICU and one of the senior doctors in the hospital. She's a pulmonologist. Her family moved to Detroit when she was 10. She has deep ties to the city now and a deep awareness of what the virus has done to black people there. I mean, I've had friends' parents. I've had multiple church members, multiple community leaders die. You know, when I walk into the ICU and 15 out of 16 patients is, you know, a, a black male between the age of 45 and 75, you know, it's really an emotional, emotional thing. Dr. Tatum lives alone. Because of the stress of COVID, she's talking to a therapist for the first time, her cousin. She has uh, way more phone calls with me than she would probably uh, care to admit. I probably owe her thousands of dollars in counseling money <laughs> at this point. We started recording the staff at this hospital in mid-April because we wanted to see what it is like for them to be going for so long in this intense and difficult situation. Rena started recording these conversations on her iPhone for us, uh, with everybody's permission and knowledge. And she sent out emails to 40 people, urging them to talk to us and to be honest about what's really happening in the hospital and tell everything, including, quote, where we fail at times, be you, she wrote, I love you. The day in mid-April that we started talking to Rena and the doctors at Henry Ford was the very first day that the number of people admitted to the ER was fewer than the day before. It was the very first day after their peak. And the number of COVID patients has slowly dropped since then. We wanted to follow our hospital staff over time because we wanted to see how they managed and adapted and adjusted and, and just what it did to them personally. And so we did regular calls with nurses and doctors on the Henry Ford staff for two and a half months. And uh, what we're going to bring you this hour are the moments that just really struck us and surprised us of all sorts. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. Stay with us. Robin Semyon is the producer in our staff who talked to Dr. Tatum, who you just heard. And Dr. Tatum uh, told her this story that gives a sense of the situation at Henry Ford and in Detroit. Um, Robin will explain. In our first interview, I asked Dr. Tatum a benign question about COVID patients using FaceTime to talk to their families who can't visit the ICU because the disease is so contagious. And as an answer, she told me a story so harrowing 
It speaks to the relentlessness and devastation of the disease on the city, its speed and cruelty. It was about a patient in his early 40s. Who had Down syndrome, who was being cared for by his sister at home. His sister had brought him in with COVID symptoms. She was also taking care of her mother, who was also sick with COVID. So she had to drop him off at the hospital by himself. We bring him in. He's very sick. We bring him into the ICU. Um, you know, we're gowned in, in, in masks and face shields and gloves and, you know, that physical barrier between us and him. And we're trying to explain to him what in the world is going on. Mm. You know, he doesn't understand it. He just sees a bunch of people dressed this way and is scared, mm. confused, um, wondering where his sibling is, what's happening, why he needs to wear oxygen. And then that's when it dawned on us. We, we, we have to figure out a way pretty quickly to help him understand. So they used FaceTime. This was one of the first times Henry Ford used it with COVID patients. It was still early in the pandemic. Dr. Tatum and her team got the man's sister on the phone, on video, so she could explain to her brother how sick he was and why the oxygen was necessary. And then she told the doctors what might help her brother relax. You know, his favorite TV channel is this. His favorite TV program is that. He likes this for a snack. He likes these things for activities. And so we were able pretty quickly to get those things that he needed to kind of, you know, create the environment as close to normal as it can be in an, in an isolation room, if you will. And did that work? Did it calm him down? It absolutely did. It absolutely did. Meanwhile, she says his mom was at a different hospital with COVID, and her condition was worsening. His sister was monitoring them both from home and calling her brother all the time to check on him and keep his spirits up. Was she giving updates to her brother about how their mom was doing, or was that like a bridge too far? That was a bridge too far. Oh, wow. Um, so he yeah. so he really didn't know that his mom was sick, no, basically? No, and... And, and, you know, the, the sad thing in this case is actually because the, the sister who was his caregiver was both taking care of him and his mother, she got ill. The staff found this out by accident. One day they needed the sister's help. And we kept calling and, and couldn't get an answer. And then after multiple attempts, another sibling called and said, hey, you know, I'm so-and-so you know, other sister, and the reason why you haven't been able to get in touch with my sister is because she has now passed away. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Um, I'm not really sure if he knows that his sister, who's his caregiver, has passed away. Oh, my um, goodness. Yeah, because, you know, so it, it, it was devastating to us as a team when we heard about that, you know, because again, this is, this is the aftermath of what we're seeing. Um, and to know that, you know, his sister who's, you know, spent her life, you know, making sure that he was okay, you know, wound up dying from the very disease that we're treating him for was really, really difficult. And this is what we're, 
we've been seeing over and over again. You know, the person who gets admitted to the ICU who, you know, tells us, yeah, well, my spouse is also sick or my daughter or son is also sick. You know, we've had instances where we've had multiple family members of just one family, you know, in our ICUs. Um, so it's it's really difficult and something I don't think any of us could have even emotionally prepared ourselves for. At its peak, COVID spread through Detroit like an invisible wildfire. Entire homes, neighborhoods, unrecognizable afterwards. The man Dr. Tatum treated was moved to rehab to recover from what COVID did to his body. What it did to his life is different. There's no rehab for that. Robin Semyon's a producer on our show. Act One, God bless America. In April, when we first started talking to the staff at Henry Ford, the intensive care unit was struggling with something they had never seen before. All these patients who were just not getting better. These were COVID patients who would either die or they'd stay stuck on ventilators for weeks. And the staff had no idea how to get them off. When that Dr. Red Oddish, who we heard at the beginning of the show, would circulate through the hospital, talking to staff and checking in, they all knew that she has a very particular approach to medicine and to patient care. Uh, Mickey Meek, welcome back. Hey again, Ira. So, yeah, Rena's whole approach to medicine comes out of an experience she had back in 2008. She was a doctor here at Henry Ford, and then she landed in her own ICU as a patient. She had multi-system organ failure, went on a ventilator. And she told me her coworkers acted like she couldn't hear them. But she actually could. What shocked and upset me the most was overhearing a resident in the hallway say, she's trying to die on me. Um, hearing in the operating room, she's circling the drain. That sounds so scary to hear that. Yeah. It was so... Um, difficult to imagine my own recovery when everyone around me was talking about me as if I was dying. But, you know, I I had said similar things. She's circling the drain. Yeah. Um, it was a culture of bravado, and it was showing that you were untouched by suffering. It was that it didn't matter. Um, one of the things I've always felt sort of ashamed about is that our patients have been telling us these things for years. When she recovered, she returned to her job at the hospital with a new mindset. It was all about empathy. That empathy would make her a better doctor, not worse. Which was the opposite of her training. She'd been taught that too much feeling clouds a doctor's judgment. She and a small team revamped the way the whole system talks to patients. And Rena wrote a book about her experience that's now used in medical schools. But when COVID hit their ICU, it became impossible for the staff to do some of the things Rena put in place. Like before COVID, when someone arrived unconscious or sedated into the ICU, they'd always ask the family, what do you think your loved one would want me to know about them? Families would put up photos and bring in quilts, personalize the rooms. And the staff, they liked that. They really wanted to get to know the person they'd be caring for. But under COVID, all that was impossible. Families could no longer come in and get to know the staff. I had one nurse tell me just yesterday, I feel like all of my patients are the same. Like, what does that mean, all the same? Um, 
in this case, they all have COVID pneumonia. They're all prone. They're all on the ventilator. And so there was the risk of, of depersonalization for the patients. She said getting to know their patients was a part of their job that they really got a lot of satisfaction out of. But they didn't totally realize that until COVID took it away. This change throughout the hospital was biggest for the nurses. They're the ones who spend the most time with COVID patients. And our next story is about the nursing staff in Pod 4. The ICU in Henry Ford is broken up into these pods. Pod 4 was kind of the front line in the hospital's COVID-19 effort. It was the very first pod designated as all coronavirus patients before the other ICU pods also became all COVID all the time. Ben Calhoun spent weeks talking to the nurses in Pod 4. By mid-April, the nurses in Pod 4 had adapted to the alternate universe of COVID-19, at least in certain ways. What I mean, take just the PPE. That's the personal protective equipment they had to wear to go into COVID rooms. This was a high-stakes thing. At this point, people had seen 10 ICU staff get COVID. Two colleagues were on ventilators. One nurse had died. Some people got superstitious about, I always put on my gloves in this order. I always wear a scrub cap under the paper cap, and then I won't get sick. What I didn't get about the PPE until talking to the nurses in pod four was the mundane, relentless, crazy-makingness of the very gear keeping them safe. This arduous ritual of rubber gloves, tie-up gowns, P100 respirators that look like gas masks, clear plastic face shields. It took five minutes to put it on to go into a room. Five to eight minutes to take it off when you come out. You might have to do this as many as two dozen or more times every single shift. How long it took to get into a room because of all the PPE is actually a good example of how COVID changed what it was like for people to do even just the basic and normal parts of their jobs. Evan Guffey is a nurse in pod four. He says you have these ICU rooms with windows out onto the hallway. Like all shift long, you hear people banging on the, the glass windows because they need the, you know, they went into the room and they forgot you know, their supplies to, to draw blood, or they forgot one medication. So, oh, so that's like a regular sound. Yes, it's very irritating, um, but we're all doing it to each other. <laughs> uh, so that there's a little bit of like a boom, 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 oh, not again. Yep, yep. It was hard in the new world of COVID to even communicate with these patients, to explain where they were and what was happening, and to reassure them and to connect with them in the way that they're used to, the way Rena Oddish talks about. They were still puzzling out the ways to do that. These patients, many of them were sedated, alone in a room with the nonstop sound of the ventilator, which is loud, it's like a vacuum. So nurses had to shout through their P100 mask, which is like a gas mask, and a clear plastic face shield over the roar of the ventilator. Hey, sir, do you know where you are right now? You're at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. You know that? Okay. Now it's, it really, you're speaking through your eyes because that's really all I can see. Anthony Valeri, another nurse in pod four. You got to speak through your eyes because they can't see it. Or you just explain to them that you're smiling. You know how many times I've said that? I said, I'm, I'm saying good morning with a smile on my face right now. You know what you're here for? You're being treated for COVID-19, the coronavirus right now, okay? Are you in any pain right now? In April, 
a month and a half into all of this, the nurses from Pod 4 seem like people who are in the throes of a crisis. But also, like people who are used to crises. The first time I talked to Evan, I asked how he's holding up. Uh, I'm good, yeah. Um, you know, I have a, a good ability to kind of leave work at work. Um, so, you know, the second I leave, I can kind of just not think about it. Um, but I'm holding up good. Sarah Davis is another nurse in pod four. She'd been hoping to take on extra shifts because her husband lost his job thanks to COVID. But you ask how she's doing. She's got the same kind of ICU nurse toughness, which I sort of grew up around. My mom was a neonatal ICU nurse. She talks like Evan, who talks like Sarah. I think kind of what I, I do and most of us do, like here in the ICU, things are hard. We kind of, what I kind of say is you put your pants on and you do it. You can't complain about it. That's going to make it worse and you, you just, you got to do it. By May, a month later, things change. Now it seems likely that pod four patients who'd been stuck on life support for weeks, most of them would probably never recover. Evan was used to helping patients get better or giving them a dignified death. Now he felt like he was seeing too many situations that were neither. The nurses had not seen this coming. Sarah Davis told me she'd braced herself for the surge, but nobody envisioned this part. You know, you, you go to work because you want to help people. That we These patients, any patients are why we go to work in the morning. Yeah. You know, and when we can't, when we can't help somebody or we're just kind of helping them just get through the day when a lot of this, and this, I don't want this to sound the wrong way, um, but we know that they're probably not going to make it out of there, right? Right. So... And I, you know, and I feel like I'm a op- person optimistic by nature, too. Mm-hmm. And recently, I'm, I feel that because I feel like I have changed, I'm more, I'm more of like my husband is the realist thing, I, and I'm the optimist. And now I feel like we're, we're kind of changing places. When I talk to Evan Guffey in May, he tells me about what he's struggling with the most that families are continuing to tell them to do everything they can to save patients, which he gets. But there's a patient who kind of typifies what he's seeing, a man, several underlying health issues, who's been stuck on life support for weeks. He's heavily sedated, breathing tube down his throat. Eventually, the man's kidneys give out, so he's on constant dialysis. His lungs also give out. And even when they stop sedating him, he remains unresponsive. It's like, you know, what are, what are we, you know, what are we doing here? Um, we're just continuing to, you know, make these people suffer in a way. Um, it's tough to see those people suffering every day, hooked up to all of these different lines and tubes, and they're essentially unresponsive. Um, and we know, you know, if we were to cut a couple of the interventions off, you know, they would pass away very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it, 
causes a lot of frustration with the nursing staff. Um, you know, cause we, we feel like, you know, we're prolonging the inevitable, you know, some of the frustration got brought up yesterday. Um, you know, we had one of our nurses talking with the physicians, you know, you know, about like, well, when, when is enough? Like, when are we done? You know. Evan means that the caring thing would be to let them die. I don't know, Ben. I don't know. It sounds like everyone, like from what I could tell from the rounding, they're just really frustrated. They feel like they're torturing people They now. do, very much. I actually was Around the same time, Rena Oddish checked in with Aaron Dix, Evan and Sarah's boss. They were standing outside the nurse's break room, talking about exactly what Evan was saying. Yeah, because they feel like they're doing wrong. Like yeah. They feel like they're preventing the inevitable, and everything that we do is not doing anything. You know, and they're like, this isn't right. Like, I feel, you know, they start to feel Guilt. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they're just keeping somebody alive when there's nothing we do yeah. is changing no, any outcome. No, I, I you know? completely understand that feeling, you know. It's just, no, there's no they way. talk about how pod four nurses are stuck in the worst position in medicine. They're caught in the middle between patients who they worry are suffering, who are clearly dying, and their families who are holding out hope. That's not, they don't understand it. It's so abstract. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, we wouldn't believe any of this if we weren't here, right? No. No, it's hard. I mean, you don't. Unless you're sitting here a day in and day out, you know, and living it every day, you don't understand it. You you can't have the feelings that that we all have. And so it's... I've been wondering if there's anything we should try to prepare to do differently. Maybe before the next wave. I don't know, which is going to I hate to even say it. I know. Like, if there are different timelines for these conversations. By these conversations, Renna means conversations with patients' families. She wonders if doctors and nurses need to change the language they're using with them, like when a patient isn't getting better. We were talking about this the other day. I think it's how we say things. Instead of saying when they're that sick, instead of saying, we've seen progress today, maybe we say, we've seen a change today, you know, and this is what we've seen. Because it creates false hope. Right. And so not to, I don't want to instill that, like, oh my God, they're getting better because they're still so crazy sick. But if we say it differently, you know. Yeah, because we're so eager to give good news, right? Like we want to. And so we, yeah. But sometimes it's false. Yeah. Yeah. Because they can change. No, that's a really wise insight. Yeah. They can change so rapidly. So I think that's the the challenge. We're asking a lot of everyone. Mm -hmm. A lot. Yeah. That same week, this is week nine, one of the nurses I talked to, Sarah Davis, she had a day where two patients died and neither of them had family in the room with them. The first was a man. He was intubated, so he couldn't speak. Sarah stood with a doctor and held an iPad wrapped in a plastic bag in front of the face of this dying man as a woman said goodbye to him. And just hearing that conversation with that woman who was talking to the patient who couldn't speak back to her, you know, Mm -hmm. um, just saying how much that she loved him and that it was a pleasure to have him, to have him in her life. And, you know, 
it was just really, it was just so much sadness. Um, In normal times, Sarah wouldn't um, even be witnessing this kind know, of private I moment. Think, I think Families would come into the room, doctors and nurses would leave. And the, chaplain, the second death, um, this is the same shift, Sarah and others in pod four gathered outside the room of a man who was dying alone. And they prayed with the man's son, who was on speakerphone. So that, you know, that was hard. Probably less than an hour after that, Sarah says. The other patient, the man with the iPad, a couple family members were supposed to be there when he died. But things went wrong. The family told the hospital, take his ventilator tube out, and we'll be there to say goodbye at 7.30. So not long before 7.30, Sarah was in the room, and he was extubated. But then, this man starts dying much faster than normal, and his family is not there yet. So so I was waiting for them to come, but while, um, while we, I was waiting for them to come, and I was making him comfortable, and, um, and I stayed with him while he died, before his family came. So, and he ended up passing right before his family came. I can't stress enough how different this is from Sarah's normal job, being alone with a dying patient. Since COVID, it's common for nurses, though, in hospitals everywhere. With this man, Sarah stood by herself and held his hand and stroked his head. She told him he did a good job as she stared through the window, hoping desperately that his family would appear. And then I came home. And you'd appreciate this because of your kids. And um, I thought I was okay. And I had come home. My kids are normally asleep. And I just peeked in the room that that they were in. And they both uh, were looking like they were sleeping. I was just kind of looking at them, crying. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Um, And then they were both up. And my son was like, oh, are you sad? And I start bawling my eyes out. And I was like, yeah, it was a sad day. And he, and you know, he knows what I do. And we called the virus the world bug. And, um, and he asked if somebody died. And so I told him, yeah. And I just like in six year old terms, you know, that I was with him and that he was comfortable. And so that was probably the saddest day that I've had. I'm so sorry. I can't imagine. Yeah. Um, it just really, it just really sucks. Around the same time, early May, COVID cases have finally receded enough that parts of the hospital are starting to go back to normal. Non-COVID floors are reopening. People who have been furloughed are coming back to work. Specialists who'd been assigned to COVID ICUs go back to their normal jobs. Even the deli reopens. Some people tell Rena that they're surprised to find themselves feeling upset about other parts of the hospital going back to normal. Not because they're jealous, but because it makes them feel like this awful thing they'd all gone through was being erased. And for the staff of Pod 4, with their 16 ICU beds, they're still 100% COVID patients. And the COVID patients are going to keep coming. Rana talked to Miki about it. I'm not seeing relief. I'm seeing sadness. And that's the thing that's starting to settle in, is this is hours. The release valve isn't coming anytime soon. Right, the group of 
I think doctors and nurses who are caring for these patients are going to be the group of doctors and nurses caring for these patients for the next two years. And um, I don't know if we've wrapped our minds around yet. COVID was this brutal new normal, stretching out all the way to the horizon of the foreseeable future. Ben Calhoun, he's one of the producers on our show. Coming up, okay, your dad comes off a ventilator, his life has been saved. What is the very first thing he says to you? We hear what happened in one family. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This is American Life from Ira Glass. Today's show, The Reprieve, stories of coronavirus at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, not when they were busiest and things were the worst, but in the weeks since, as the number of cases steadily declined. What you're hearing this hour is when things were less awful. I should say before we go any further that, of course, this past week, COVID-19 cases across the country have been on the rise, including in Michigan. Anyway, in the first half of our show, we focused mostly on the staff of the hospital. In this half, we turned to the people that they tried to save. We've arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2, Stan's Good Day. And... We found about the patient in this story from a recording made by a young doctor named Stan Linder, who worked in the intensive care unit during the second year of his training at Henry Ford, studying his specialties, nephrology and critical care. He said that um, he would binge Oreos to cope with the stress. I am not going to make my summer body goals, he told one of our producers. Anyway, our producer, Emmanuel Berry, uh, put this together. It begins with a voice memo that Stan recorded for us on his phone. This is April 30th, 2020, 7.30 at night. And I've just finished my last COVID ICU day. I've worked the last 11 days in a row and it's been sort of a crazy experience. And today was really rough, really rough. I've had some really horrible moments, horrible moments that I will always remember. And I feel like I'm eventually going to have PTSD from this, which sucks. But one of my best moments in this has definitely been one of my patients, and I will always remember her for the rest of my life. She was young, and pregnant, very along in her pregnancy, very along. And the first day that I met her, she was struggling to breathe, like really struggling to breathe. And you could tell that just by how fast she was breathing. But she was in that same moment comfortable. Her face was total comfort. It was sort of eerie to see how fast she was breathing 40 to 50 times a minute. That's very fast. That's almost one breath a second for you to inhale and exhale that quickly. Takes a lot of work, takes a lot of muscle movement to do that. Eventually someone will tire out and then they will stop breathing. Before the patient ended up intubated, had to have her call her husband on the phone 
so we could have a conversation about what would happen, not only to my patient, but also her unborn child. That's an extreme conversation to have within five minutes of meeting a person. And so she was on the ventilator for seven days and ended up getting extubated on that seventh day. And she did great for a couple hours after she got extubated. And then by noon, everything went haywire. And she was adamant, adamant that she would not. She absolutely did not want the tube back in. And I pleaded with her because her heart rate was up. She was so, she was breathing so fast. Like I thought she was going to tie her out again. And she was adamant. She's like, no, I do not want that tube back in. And then two days later, she um, had a vaginal delivery. (laughs) I have never, like, she had a vaginal delivery two days after getting extubated from a ventilator for seven days. Like, that blows my mind. It blows my mind. Blows my mind. A miracle. Amazing. My patient survived. My patients survived. I had two, two patients in that room. And they both came out healthy. And a lot of my patients, especially in the beginning of all this, didn't. So I'm really glad I've had this experience right at the end. What's the baby like? Uh, well, she's <laughs> she's a really, a really tough baby. <laughs> <laughs> Why? She's like she she, she want to be uh, in arms all day. And if you don't do what she what she wants at the moment, she like get really mad and she give you this mad face. And uh, it's it's funny, but sometimes it's cute. <laughs> and, you don't know what I went through for you, child. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, okay, you, yeah, I'm like, okay, you you really have a bad attitude with me. <laughs> <laughs> this is Francesca Miranda Aquino. She worked as a chef at PF Chang's. She's originally from Puerto Rico. Now she lives in Mexican town, southwest Detroit, with her husband, who's a preacher, their two-year-old son, and now her newborn daughter, who does not seem to appreciate what her mom went through to bring her into the world. Francesca remembers a few things from her time in the ICU. She remembers how hopeless the place seemed when they wheeled her in. It felt like breathing in death, she says. She remembers how days later, when she came to... No one else in her pod was awake. And she remembers the moment Stan talked about, where she refused to be reintubated. It was the morning of the 21st. The tube had only been out for a few hours. And um, I remember that another doctor came in and he told me that my heart was beating really fast and my blood pressure was really, really high. And he told me that probably they need to put uh, the, the tubes back again. And I need to relax. And I told him no. 
<laughs> no, you're not going to put those two back again. And I, yeah, I told him, it just passed one hour where, you took, where they took out the tooth on me. And now you want to put the tooth back on me? No, you just need to give me time. That's what I told him. You need to give me time where my body starts reacting normal. And he was like, okay. Billions and billions of people have had babies. Millions have gotten COVID. Very few people like Francesca have done both at the same time. They decided to induce labor, and she chose to do it alone because she thought it would be too dangerous for her family to come to the ICU where everyone had COVID. Remember, she'd only been off the ventilator for two days. She was incredibly weak, could barely raise her legs by herself. At this point, she's still on oxygen. The doctors wanted her to hold her breath and push, but breathing in general was still tough. And then, once the baby was born, after 25 hours of labor, so when I had the baby, they really took the baby out of the room, and I didn't get to see my baby after three days. You didn't get to see the baby for three days? Yeah, after three days, yeah. Francesca was still recovering from COVID and still in the ICU, so she and the baby were separated. When Francesca was well enough to be moved from the ICU to the general floor, she was told she would have to wear a mask and gloves but she could hold her child for the first time. I was like, oh my God, uh, I thought I would never hold you. <laughs> but I, I felt really happy. And I, as soon I was with her in the room, I called my husband on video call. And my husband started crying. And he got like, my husband is a really emotional person. Mm-hmm. And he started crying, and he was really excited. He put on the phone my son, and my son was watching his sister. It was a really, really good moment. What's the baby's name? Addie's Beth. Francesca's at home now. She's not working because she doesn't have childcare, But she's happy that she's no longer being poked and prodded with needles at the hospital. Addie's Beth is doing great. She's perfectly healthy. Francesca says she loves kisses from her big brother. She's sleeping through the night and already trying to roll under her tummy. Emmanuel Barry. Act three, Granger in a Strange Land. So Robert Granger was in pod four for three weeks. He got close with one of the nurses, Sarah Davis. She's the nurse that you heard earlier who saw two people die in a single day. The nurse who talked about becoming less of an optimist. She had a special connection with Mr. Granger and attached a lot of hope to his case. They talked about his wife, who died of cancer in January, and how hard his family had taken it. He also talked about his grown daughter, Jocelyn. And as he got sicker, Sarah really pushed him to phone Jocelyn. Here's Sarah. I was like, we're calling her. No, I don't want to. I was like, we're calling her. <laughs> so, but the, what was really interesting about him and his daughter was, as he was talking to his daughter, he was being so tough, but at the same time crying. Um, his wife had just passed away, not from COVID. Um, and he was doing everything that he possibly could because he didn't want his daughter to lose dad. Emmanuel Barry put together this story about Robert Granger and his daughter Jocelyn. 
Jocelyn's in her 20s and her dad's in his 60s. He works for the city fixing buses. And we called her one Friday and said he needed to go to the hospital. I'm like, that's all I need to know. Honk up, ran down, speeded on my way to his house because I was scared. I'm like, I think he has it. Yeah, what was that? What was that car ride like? Um, he probably was scared because I probably was driving like the dragster at Cedar Point. Like, it was to the point to where it was, I'm worried about, I'm like, I need to get him there because I'm thinking, like, I'm hearing all over the news that they're running out of supplies. And I'm like, I need to get him in there just in case he needs a ventilator. And he was like, um, you know how fast you're going. And I'm like, okay, okay, reality, reality. And then spike back up. And I literally just remember drifting into the emergency because I've seen the tent had my mask on he was in the back seat just to social distance for me and then the last thing he said to me was i get out of here if you take it me home don't drive like this when we go back but she can't take him home he has covid and he's taken to icu pod four as the days pass he gets worse the medications don't seem to work his breathing becomes more labored and then on jocelyn's birthday i get a call from him saying like hey I might be put on a ventilator. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Because the doctors are telling me the last thing they want to do is put him on a ventilator because most people are not making him out. So I'm freaking out. Then it turns out it was a false alarm. And then a few days later, um, I get a phone call. And he just said, it's not looking so good. And it almost sounded like he whispered it to me because he couldn't breathe. One of the scariest phone calls of my life. Probably the top second. The first is when he called me to tell me my mother passed. And now this was the second worst phone call I've ever received in my life. Like, how, how do you react to that? When I say it took so much muscle to not have my voice crack because I was getting ready to sob, I'm like, okay, Dad, I'll talk to you soon. Why didn't you want to your voice to crack on the phone or for your dad to hear you getting upset? Because if, just like my mom, if I worry, he worries. That's what he said about you. Is that why he said he didn't want to, he had to keep his composure too? Yeah, he didn't want you to worry. Told her that, you know, I love her. And, uh, that I'm about to go on a, a, a ventilator and I don't know what's going to happen. And I just told her, you know, let the family know and talk to our minister. And uh, they, they came in and they put me on it. This is her dad, Robert. Though I'm going to call him Mr. Granger because that's what Sarah Davis called him. And it's just a solid dad name. The nurses told us they often wondered what this all looked like from the patient's side. Here's how it looked for Mr. Granger. When he was rolled into the ICU, he says he felt like he was inside a fishbowl. Lots of windows, lots of people staring at him through those windows, including Sarah Davis. Sarah stands out the most. I just remember her a lot of times looking through the window. A lot of the nurses and uh, one nurse in particular will hold up a little piece of paper and say, we're praying for you. As I started getting uh, a little worse, the, uh, I noticed just uh, the doctors were, they didn't come in at first. They would just look, they would, you know, they would just look through the window. 
look at me, wave, and then look at uh, the meter at my my vitals. What did it feel like to just have people looking? I didn't know what to think at first. Mm-hmm. And then uh, one doctor came in and he sat down and he asked me, what did I think? And I say, well, I'm thinking things are not too good. This is when the doctors told Mr. Granger they might have to put him on a ventilator. And I said, uh, if I'm on it for a reasonable amount of time and things don't look good, take me off. Was it easy for you to make that decision? or No, but it's a decision I wanted to make. I didn't want, I didn't want my daughter to have to make that. So going through my head is at that time, I didn't, you know, they didn't know whether I was going to make it or not. And the only thing I can think of is, wow, my, you know, we just went to losing my wife. And my daughter's losing her mother. Now, if I lose, if she loses me, she's really going to be devastated. Because my daughter, she's an emotional person. On that phone call about the ventilator, dad was trying to protect his daughter by being tough. Daughter was trying to protect dad by doing the same thing. But neither of them was conscious of this until Sarah, the nurse, who was getting to know them both, pointed it out. Here's Jocelyn. She just asked me, like, you know, how was that? Like, how did you stay so strong? And I said... Girl, when I hung up, I was not strong at all. I let it out. She was like, your dad literally said the same thing. And I was like, go figure. And that's when I realized I usually, my mom was the sweetest person ever. And I used to think I got the kindest thing where I can't say no to helping people. I used to think I got it from her. I got it from him. And I was just like, it just made me feel more guilty. And I'm like, wow, I really wish I took the time to get closer to you equally as much as my mom. For 10 days, he's on a ventilator, and she wonders if she'll ever have more time with him. Jocelyn described this thing that really stuck with me. That when you call into a hospital every day, when you cannot see or talk to your loved one, You live with this sort of picture of them in your head that you're holding on to. Even though what's happening to them may be completely different than that image, there's this disconnect. So when she calls to check in on him a week or so in, in her head, he's sleeping on a vent. But the nurse who answers the phone says, oh, he's off the vent. And he was. She gets him on the phone. And then, like, you know, when the first thing he asked me when he answered the phone to tell me that he was off the ventilator. He literally asked me, did I need any money? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, are you serious right now? <laughs> I'm like, no. I'm like, I, that, and it, it just kind of like, you know how someone does like a personality quirk, it just sums up their whole character. That was it. I was like, wow, you literally just died and came back. And the first thing you ask is, do you need any money? I just remember calling him on April 17th, which is my mom's birthday. He was still kind of like not conscious. So I asked the nurse and I'm like, I'm like, you know, is my dad awake? And she was like, no, he's sedated. And I'm like, okay, good. Because today would have been his wife's birthday. I just want to make sure he's not sad or depressed. After four weeks in the hospital, Mr. Granger was discharged to a rehab center. When he was well enough to come home from there, Jocelyn went to pick him up. She made sure to get all her crying done in the car before she got there. I did. Like, I tried not to cry because I hate crying in front of my dad. I do too. Because I feel like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really hate crying in front of my, I don't know what it is, 
but I, I I don't know. I just hate crying in front of people, but it's just I really hate crying in front of my dad. So I'm like, don't cry, don't cry. Like, I let my crying out in the car. I was playing all of my, like, sad reuniting songs. So I'm like, okay. What were you playing? Uh, I think I'll have to go through my plays because I played about, like, 65 songs. Because the problem with me is I can never play a, a song fully. Like, in the middle, I'm like, okay, I'm tired of the song. Next. <laughs> but I do know some artists. I played as some of his famous artists, which are The Temptations, The Whispers. Um, I played some of my mom's favorite artists, which are the Bee Gees, which is hilarious. And when mm. I seen him, he looked different in a good way. Like, my dad never had a beard before. So I was like, wow, you have a beard. And he looked so, like, thin. Not, like, in, like, a bad way. It, like, you could tell he lost a lot of weight. And I said, I'm like, wow, if mom could have seen you now. It, it just felt like we just kind of pressed play. It's like, I, you know how, like, you play a CD and it just skips and you're just in some random scene? Like, I felt like I was just, like, in a random splash of happiness. Like, it just didn't happen. Like, once I got him in that car, it felt like it didn't happen. I'm like, wow, like, I literally have you in the car and you don't, I, you know, I didn't expect you to look like this, but you look better. And then start talking about food. And just normal things we talked about. And I was like, wow. I feel like Winnie the Pooh and Christopher Robin. <laughs> <laughs> How so? It's, it's okay. Every kind of end of the movie, they go to this special place where they just talk about random things. And it's called the Enchanted Forest. And it's kind of like that whole car ride was just conversations of things he missed. Things that have been going on, random things that we talked about before, what we've been craving to eat. And it, it just, it felt amazing. And I'm like, wow, I almost, I'm so happy that I almost forgot the trauma that I just experienced. Mr. Granger's at home, but still in recovery. When I talked to him, he could walk up to nine minutes at a time. He's hoping to make it around the block soon, without a walker. Emmanuel Barry. Act four, Mr. Eastside. Some of the first COVID patients to arrive at Henry Ford were police and others who'd attended a community breakfast in early March called Police and Pancakes. And we were especially interested in the story of that breakfast and those patients because it illustrates the scale of loss outside the hospital walls, the scale of loss in the city of Detroit. Aaron Foley is from the city. He used to work as the city's chief storyteller, a position in the mayor's office that focuses on Detroiters telling their own narratives. He has this story of the breakfast and of one man in particular who ended up at Henry Ford. I'm going to take you to the east side of Detroit for a minute, which is hard for me to do as a Westsider. But I'll let it slide because I want to tell you the story of someone who embodied everything the city's east side is made of. Marlowe Stoudemire. The east side is where some of the first black Detroiters were able to legally purchase homes. And it includes some of Detroit's best attractions, like Belle Isle, which is something like our Central Park. But it also includes zip code 48205, which, in addition to diehard loyalists, has had one of the highest crime rates in the city. The policing in that zip code, and in the rest of the city, 
included so much excessive force that the Detroit Police Department, the DPD, was put under a consent decree for years. And ever since, police have been trying to establish a better relationship with the community. The police and Pancakes Breakfast was part of that. The precinct there, the Ninth Precinct, held the breakfast to highlight the progress that had been made and to try to get more voices in the conversation about police, like young people, pastors, and business owners. It was at Fisher Magnet Upper Academy, a table in the entryway for name tags and long buffet tables where heated trays of hash browns, eggs, and, of course, pancakes are waiting. About 100 people were at the opening session. Police officers, of course, but also residents, representatives of the mayor's office, state legislators, and some high-achieving high school students, like senior Harley James. He's wearing a suit on a school day. His principal texted him the night before asking if he could come. He's a good public speaker with a full ride to Michigan State this fall. When he arrived, the crowd was exactly what he expected it would be. A lot of old people. <laughs> it felt like one of them events that don't nobody go to. But, like, I didn't expect no high schoolers to be there. It wasn't barely any high schoolers there. It wasn't something a teenager would, would go to just, like, if they was just like, oh, let's go to that. It was just, like, all grown people there. Letty Azar, who works in the mayor's office handling community affairs on the east side, was speaking that day. When she arrived, she saw Harley and gave him a big hug. Not surprised that he'd be out of the classroom for an event like this. I mean, the kid can network like nobody's business. Um, he just he's, he's an incredible young man. So it's, She's it's looking really around the crowd to see who's here, see looking here. around at all the different police, worried that the message of the breakfast won't come across. And then I saw Marlo, and that was a, a big reassurance that, in fact, it was going to be a good day and a great event. Marlo is a community staple in Detroit. He had been tapped to help organize this event and host one of the portions of the breakfast as well. Letty worked with him a lot last year, side by side, intense community meetings, where he put people at ease and got their trust, though she hadn't seen him in a few months. But I remember him walking through the the entry door and he just, he gave me the biggest hug and lifted me right off of my feet. And the, we were both so excited to do this together that morning. And, and I was kind of reminded of that the minute I saw his face, that, you know, any concerns we had about how successful that day would be just kind of went away once you saw Marlo and got that hug. One of the other people Marlo ran into was my friend Adam Hollier. We went to high school together. Now he's a state senator representing part of the east side. So he's always at events like the pancake breakfast. But today he wasn't giving out any hugs. I was taking COVID-19 very seriously. People were like foot tapping or elbow bumping, but I wasn't. I, I was trying to, to keep my distance with, with folks just because uh, my mother had recently got through chemo and, and I was, you know, being operating under an abundance of caution throughout this process. And then he saw Marlo and he forgot all that. Nobody has a quick interaction with Marlo Stockmar. I mean, you know, you that's a guy that makes you feel like like you matter, right? A good friend of mine was teasing there like, Marlo's that hustle guy who, who found his way to work in the system, not on the outside of it. It's just like, hey, I need five turkeys or, or, or I need to get you know these kids from this practice to this practice. And then all of a sudden you need a referee. It's like, well, where are you going to get a referee? You just call Marlo. Everybody has a story about Marlo. 
and Marlowe seemed to know everybody who was trying to make life better for Black Detroit. He'd host these people on a makeshift talk show he did on Facebook Live. I want to talk to you about a special guest that I have today. She's killing it right now in, the, in a major way. Brittany Rhodes, yeah, that's her, is the founder of Black Girl Mathjik. Right, it's math and magic. I first met Marlo when we were both invited to speak at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology for a panel about Detroit, of course. I had just started working for the mayor's office as chief storyteller, and I was getting some backlash because the mayor is white and I'm not. I had a long career as a journalist, and the mayor hired me during an election year. People said I sold out. I heard rumors about me that I was just hired on to finesse the mayor's image. And because of that, I didn't know who in Detroit I could trust. That very first time I met him, Marlowe sensed something was wrong with me during that trip to Boston. So he got me to open up. He was disarming, and I shared with him some of the mixed emotions I was having about what people were saying about me back home. He told me, and I quote, that really pisses me the fuck off that people would say that about you. And if anybody has anything to say about it, we're going to deal with them. I never forgot that. Marlowe told me to fuck him. His words. He told me that folks are rooting for me, folks are watching me, folks are wanting me to do well, and that he was excited for me, and he was counting on me. Just weeks after the breakfast, Marlo Stoudemire would become the first person in Detroit publicly identified as dying from the virus. Yo, yo, yo. Good morning, Detroit. Good morning. This is Marlo Stoudemire with another edition of Saturday Morning Coffee um, at another location, as you will see and find out in a few minutes. Here he is the day after the police and pancakes breakfast discussing the event on his makeshift talk show, which he hosted every Saturday on Facebook Live. I had the privilege of being invited by Justin Kempson um, at the Fort Resource and Engagement Center. Shout out to Justin um, over on the east side to facilitate a conversation between the community and the Detroit Police Department. And it was called Police and Pancakes. And the cool thing about it was is that they, they brought in the different police and different community stakeholders. And the whole conversation was how to create a better community experience with the Detroit Police Department. And so On that video, he also talked about his health. This was before COVID really hit Detroit. It wasn't on most people's minds. And he chalked it up to his lifestyle. Hustling, grinding, always going hard, 24-7. I ran into one of my frat brothers over the weekend, last weekend, and uh, he said, man, you know, I really like the stuff that you're doing, the moves you're making out here, and all these other different things. But one of the things that he talked about was, he said, make sure you take care of yourself. He said, you need to find a way to have self-care. And what's interesting is, is that this week was a week where I felt bad. Um, I had a few health challenges. I had a procedure done this week. Um, and I realized that I hadn't been taking care of myself, so I need to make some adjustments. No one knows exactly how COVID started spreading through Detroit, but law enforcement was hit hard in the beginning, and dozens of offices were at Police and Pancakes. At its height, more than 500 DPD employees were quarantined to contain the spread, about a fifth of the force. As COVID spread through Michigan, I remember looking at what people in Detroit were sharing on Facebook. There are a lot of requests for prayer. There are a lot of jokes, too. Some about how Verner's, the popular ginger ale, was all Detroiters needed to beat this deadly virus. After police and pancakes, the Detroit Health Department began letting attendees know that they may have been exposed to the virus. 
People started wondering if they were carriers and who they might be passing it on to. Harley had left police and pancakes and went back to school. Letty left for another community event in District 4. Adam went to mingle with some pretty big names. As soon as I left the breakfast, I went over to the uh, Joe Biden office opening, uh, the Joe Biden for president piece. And so, you know, was there with the LG. The lieutenant governor. Representative Yancey and Tate uh, and former Governor Blanchard as we kind of kicked off the office. And I drove up to, to Cornell and then uh, kind of came back. At, and that Monday night, uh, we had the... Um, the big Joe Biden rally at Renaissance. And that was, you know, the last big event that I had gone to. But at that same moment, you know, I bump into Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and, uh, you know, a host of congressional members and I'm with the governor. You know, when I got uh, the call maybe a week later that uh, Marlo had, had, you know, tested positive, it was like, man, God, I just hope I didn't give, you know, somebody you know, COVID-19. And when you look, look back at those moments, it was all very scary because you're like, well, when, how, if, do I have it? He didn't get sick. Marlo once worked at Henry Ford as community and diversity manager and later director of international business strategy. When he got there in March, he was one of the first patients treated for COVID-19 in pod four in the ICU. His time there was short. He died on March 24th. Someone from work, a mutual friend, called Letty with the news. Was he the first person you knew that had passed from it? or He was, but interestingly, um, three hours later, I got a call on a DPD friend who had passed away. That's Jonathan Parnell, who was one of our DPD captains. And um, I've known his family for some time. So he was a great guy, very well-respected police officer and member of the community. So it was Marlowe and Recon that day, and um, then the next day, two more, and then the next day, three more. And that week of March that Marlowe passed away was, I just, um, I hope to never have to live anything like that again. But it was just unbelievable, the number of calls and texts and people you knew that you worked with, you prayed with, you ate with, you grew up with. Uh, that you would see at community meetings that you realize you're just never going to see again. We lost so many valuable souls in this city. And uh, to come out of this pandemic, they'd be the first people you turn to to say, all right, how do we, how do we get everybody, you know, how do we help rebuild some momentum? And they're not there. Over the next few hours on that day, Tributes started to pour in across social media about Marlowe, about how Detroit lost a giant, a champion, whatever your preferred term may be, and that there was now a void that couldn't be filled. Who do you call now when you need advice or when you need mentorship? Who calls you when you need to be checked on? Who among us did he leave? And what would he be doing now, in this moment, when racial inequities have been laid bare, not just by the virus, but also by the killing of George Floyd? In Detroit, another name you hear at demonstrations these days is Ayanna Stanley Jones. She was a seven-year-old girl from the east side who was killed in a police raid while she slept on a couch back in 2010. Adam Holier, my friend the state rep, says Marlowe will be jumping in right now, 
to help realize the goals of Black Lives Matter, wherever the biggest need is? Oh, Marlo, I mean, Marlo is the type of person who would have been in the forefront, but he'd also have been someone that white people would have been reaching out to, right? So I have gotten a number of calls and texts from my well-intentioned, caring uh, white friends who were like, hey, you know, just checking in on you, you know, thinking about you. Marla would have been, you know, the king of getting those kind of things, right? Like there'd have been a host of people reaching out to him. They'd say, well, how can I be helping him? Like, well, you can do these three things, right? They'd say, I got this organization that is doing this work. You can donate. Your business could hire more Black people. You can do these things. And I think people are now willing to say that Black lives matter. What they aren't willing to say is how much they value them, right? Like how much do they matter? He would have been uniquely situated to have those conversations with people. James Fegan IV is another one of those connectors in Detroit who I know knows everybody. Anytime I see him out, he's in a blazer and a button-up shirt. But now... Do I have to be in, like, soundbite? I'm on the air mode, or can I just talk? Just talk. All right, because, yeah, I, I'm in gym shorts on my patio right now. I'm not, I'm not on right now. That's, that's fine. Both James and Marlo are around 40. They both grew up on the east side during that chaotic time in Detroit when crack started to ravage the city. They both built their careers in Detroit, dedicated to Detroit. Where is Marlo missing right now? You know, this was a question I started thinking about the other day, and it was tough um, because I'm still mourning. A lot of us are. But um, the the sad irony that Marlo's last act was at a, you know, a police and pancakes breakfast on the Far East Side trying to foster positive, I'm sorry, positive relations with young black males and, and the police. That's what's missing right now, you know. There's a lot of us who may have had negative experiences with police, but we also got, you know, police in our family, you know, friends. If we could create more forums like that, then it would help everybody. Because our our goal is that everybody, you know, number one, stays alive. And number two, like, has a chance to contribute to a better Detroit and a better Black community. And I could just see him right now being that person that would, you know, be as angry as we all are about what happened to George Floyd, but also have some real relationships to point to and lean on. When I talked to Marlo's wife, Valencia, she didn't want to discuss the final days of her husband's life and says their two children are still adjusting to life without their dad. But she told me this story about an overseas trip they took just this past fall. We went to Rome in October and literally we saw the Coliseum and he was like tearing up. And I'm like, oh, babe, you know, what's, what's wrong? You know, he's like... You just don't understand, like, 
I'm not supposed to be here. Like this was what I saw in textbooks. This was not real, you know? And here's what had me to believe that it wasn't, it wasn't real for me as a black male. It wouldn't be my reality to see it. And it was overwhelming to him. I'm so glad we got to have that experience, but um, he just, it was very important for him that he beat the odds. And there are so, and it was important to him that not only did he beat them, but all of the young men that looked like him behind him had an opportunity to do the same. And I think that was the most important thing to him. Last year, Marlo did this thing for 50 days straight, where each day he'd write a Facebook post about two Black people in Detroit he saw potential in, which he later turned into a website called Roster Detroit. This came after a Chamber of Commerce official said that Amazon didn't choose Detroit for its new headquarters partly because the city didn't have enough talent. Marlo's response was this list to say, here's what you missed out on. Right now, the list of people we've lost to COVID is too long. So too is the list of people we've lost to police brutality. These lists are about Black death. But at this moment, I like to think about Roster Detroit, Marlowe's list of Black talent. A list that's about Black people living. Aaron Foley. He's about to become the head of the Black Media Initiative at the Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York. Um, I'm looking at this sign in the window. I don't know if y'all can see it. It says, nothing stops Detroit. Um, Nothing stops the people of Detroit, is what I would say. And the point that I'm making is, y'all, look, if not us, then who? You got to make a decision about who you're going to be, right? And the city has to make a decision about what it's going to be and who it's going to be. And I will tell you right now, it's tough. But the last time I checked, this was the D. And so I will just say, um, stay motivated, stay connected, and help people. Help people, help people, help people. I'll help you. Hit me up. All right, D. Holla. It's a cold world, but it's warming up. We ain't got no choice but to run it up. It ain't just one, it's a hundred to us. Might not mean much to you, but mean something to us. It's a cold world, but it's warming up. We ain't got no choice but to run it up. It ain't just one, it's a hundred to us. Might not mean much to you, but mean something to us. Yeah. Well, program was produced today by Nikki Meek and Emmanuel Barry. 
people who put together our show today includes Bim Arawunmi, Susan Burton, Ben Calhoun, Dana Chivas, Sean Cole, Aviva de Kornfeld, Hilary Elkins, Nora Gill, Damien Grave, Michelle Harris, Lena Masitzi, Stone Nelson, Catherine Maimondo, Lisa Pollock, Nadia Raymond, Brian Reed, Robin Semyon, Christopher Sotala, and Matt Tierney. Our managing editors are Diane Wu and Sarah Abdurrahman. Our executive editor is David Kastenbaum. Special thanks today to Michael Eichenhorn, Sarah Hagab, Jackie Flom, Kristen Chastine, Kim Northshine, Patrick Bradley, Brittany Brown, Lamont Jones, Tatiana Grant, Melinda Madrigal, Imani Mixon, John Ranaszewski, Jeffrey Rose, Sonia Russell, Marcus Thurkel, Angela Wicks, Sarah Alvarez, Todd Bettison, Pamela Chen, Tony Davis, Jillian Grafton, Emily Ayo Co, Scott Cates, Tucson Knight, Ricardo Marble, Kerry Morgan, Betty Morris, Verithi Narial, John Roach, Drea Donna Rowland, Steve Poloni, Stacey Prantera, Zachary Smith, Jeff Watrick, and Stateline, a journalism project funded by the Pew Charitable Trust. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, he actually met Donald Trump once. This was years ago. Kind of a weird story. He literally asked me, did I need any money? I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. It's a cold world, but it's warming up. We ain't got no choice but to run it up. It ain't just one, it's a hundred to us. Might not mean much to you, but mean something to us. It's a cold world.